Decolonization is code. It's a dog whistle, if you will. And it means the mass slaughter of civilians, or what the radical left likes to call settlers, as we saw on October 7th. Now, if we accept this warped academic theory, which is pushed and promoted across our society, usually dressed up as a diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative, if we accept it and we let it go to its logical conclusion, we will see more October 7th-style massacres, not just in Israel, but across the West, and particularly in Canada. I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we're going to unpack the academic terms such as decolonization, settler, and direct action, as well as resistance and many others. I'm going to talk about the latest scandals, including at my university, the one that I graduated from, the University of Alberta. And later in the show, I am going to be debating my friend and colleague, Rupa Subramania, on free speech and its limits here in the West. So stick around. If you're watching this video on YouTube or Rumble, please like this video, subscribe to True North, and make sure to turn on notifications so you don't miss any of our videos. If you're watching on Facebook, despite uh, the C18 van, if you're able to still see this, please make sure you like our True North page, drop us a comment, and share this video. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple or Spotify, please make sure to leave us a five-star review if you enjoy the podcast, and to subscribe to The Candace Malcolm Show so you don't miss any of our content. Finally, to everyone listening, everyone watching, please head on over to our website website www.tnc.news where you can read our latest reports and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter so that Bill C-18 and the big tech censorship cannot stop you from learning the truth. Thank you so much. The left loves to accuse conservatives of using dog whistles. Now if you want to test this theory just head on over to Google Type in Pierre Polyev and dog whistle, and you'll find about 100 legacy media stories accusing him of all kinds of things that he never said, but that some journalists decided that he must believe based on something totally different that he said. Do you get that? Well, I'll give you an example. In March, Pierre Polyev's team posted an image on Instagram of a Canadian police logo. In the description, he included a beautiful commemoration for two brave police officers who were sadly killed in the line of duty in Edmonton. Now, instead of just accepting this nice commemoration of brave police officers who sacrifice their lives uh, for safety, the legacy media decided to pull out some kind of totally different conclusion. They accused him, I kid you not, of promoting anti-black racism. Yes, Trudeau's media decided that a police logo is actually a dog whistle for an extremist fascist movement, which apparently Pierre Polyev is trying to court. Now, can someone please tell me, is there a large anti-black fascist community in Canada that Pierre Polyev desperately needs on his side? Who are these fascists, seriously, and where do they live? What party are they currently voting for that Pierre Polyev has to supposedly work very hard to take their vote away and bring it over to the conservatives? Of course, the media never explain any of that. They never bother, but we're just supposed to believe their utter nonsense. Well, what I find interesting when we're talking about dog whistles is the left's development of their own lexicon, usually obscure academic jargon that eventually makes its way into mainstream language. Now, this jargon includes code words that actually mean something quite different than they first appear. So I'll give you an example. Over the weekend, left-wing writer and podcaster Nora Loretta posted this on X. She's celebrating the increased violence that we see at pro-Hamas rallies. She doesn't come right out and call it violence, of course. Instead, she calls it direct action. Here's her post. She writes, guys, the amount of direct action happening right now is 
incredible. Now, we know that direct action means violence because Antifa put out a handbook that explicitly said this. They defined direct action as proactive self-defense. Yes, very clever. As in, I'm going to go attack those Nazis over there before they come and attack me. But the only problem is, according to Antifa, anybody who doesn't join in their anarchy and destruction, they consider to be a Nazi. So that means that just about everybody is fair game for actual violence. Now, when Nora Loretta celebrates direct action, she's no doubt referring to the pro-Hamas rallies that we've seen devolve into riots. We've seen the destruction of property, often Jewish-owned businesses and places of worship. We've seen altercations and physical fights against the police, as we saw recently in Calgary. And we've seen blockades of highways, bridges, railways, and other critical infrastructure. Now, it's funny, and I have to note, that when the truckers in the Freedom Convoy went over and blocked the Ambassador Bridge for just a few hours... That was enough for Justin Trudeau to call in the military and introduce martial law to break up the entire protest. But, of course, when the pro-Hamas side does it, when they actually go and harass him in a restaurant in Vancouver and they tie up and block critical infrastructure across the country, what does Trudeau do? Interestingly, it actually leads him to flip-flop on his position. And in this case, he changed his mind and began to condemn Israel for fighting back against Hamas Funny, funny, strange world that we live in. Now back to the concept of direct action, which is considered self-defense to the radical left, just like how many people on the radical left defended the October 7th massacre carried out by Hamas, and they called it resistance, or they called it decolonization, decolonization. We do hear that word a lot in Canada. So let's dive into it. What does it actually mean? Well, Nanja Sharif, who is a writer at the Soho House magazine and Teen Vogue, she stated it very clearly on X. I don't think that anyone stated it this clearly. This is what she wrote after October 7th. She said, What did y'all think decolonization meant? Vibes? Papers? Essays? Losers? That's right. According to some on the left, if you didn't get it before, you get it now. Decolonization means mass murder of civilians. It means a massacre. It means a deadly pogrom against children in their beds. It means genocide of the so-called settlers. Yes, settlers, the same thing that I get called just about every day on social media by radical leftists. So if you have skin color that looks like mine, if you have an English sounding name like I do, you're probably a settler too. That means that you're not a civilian. According to the radical left, you're fair game for violence, even murder. Yes, you are a legitimate military target. Now, if you think I'm being hyperbolic, I'm not. Here's an example right here. A professor at Yale University, one of the most prestigious institutions in the entire world, saying just that. Settlers are not civilians. It's not hard. Yes, that is what Professor Zarina Grewal, an American studies professor at Yale University, wrote. And no, it isn't just the American radical left. If anything, these phrases are even more common in Canada. And the people who understand these words of what they truly mean, the ones who are most confident and vocal in using them, are usually in Canada. Here are just a few examples. At York University, the Students' Union put out the following statement on October 12th. They wrote, from Turtle Island to Palestine, for those of you who don't know, Turtle Island is what they call North America or Canada. They wrote, from Turtle Island to Palestine and across all occupied lands, these events serve as a reminder that resistance against colonial violence is justified and necessary. This is decolonization and land backed actualized as we continue to see the Palestinian people stand firm in their resistance against their oppressors. Did you get all that? I know it was pretty jargon heavy, but they said that resistance is justified. Resistance is necessary. Remember, resistance just means violence. This is what decolonization looks like. 
what we saw, the massacre, the despicable violence that we saw against civilians on October 7th in Israel. That's all necessary. That's all what we mean when we say decolonization, just making it perfectly clear. And it isn't just a bunch of crazy students at York University in suburban Toronto. We had a professor over at McMaster University, Emil Joseph, basically say the same thing. He wrote the following October 7th before the massacre was probably even finished in Israel. He wrote, post-colonial, anti-colonial, and decolonial are not just words you heard in your EDI workshop. Next, here's a sign we saw at a Vancouver protest, just making it perfectly clear again. The sign writes, decolonization is not a theory. Finally, we have an Ontario member of the provincial parliament, formerly with the NDP. She got ousted over all of this. Her name is Sarah Jama. She wrote this on October 10th. She said, I'm reflecting on my role as a politician who's participating in this settler colonial system. And I ask that all politicians do the same, hashtag free Palestine. She's just participating in this disgusting settler colonial system that we like to call Canada. Our entire civilization is a disgrace, according to the far left. Jama continues, she writes, for 75 years, violence and retaliation rooted in settler colonialism have taken the lives of far too many innocent people. So as you know, and as we all saw, they're trying to justify, they're trying to say that October 7th didn't just happen. It was justified. It was necessary. It was all the fault of the Israelis for being colonial, being settlers, and colonizing Israel in the first place, much the same arguments that they make against Canadians. So following all this, we had a bunch of think pieces come out in Canadian publications. I want to go through a few. Tasha Carradin in the National Post wrote this on October 12th. She writes, JAMA's statements illustrate the absurd lengths to which the decolonization movement had been taken. Today, the word decolonization has lost all meaning. Now, I disagree with Tasha here. I don't think that decolonization has lost its meaning. It's the opposite. We found its meaning. Its meaning is clearer now than it's ever been. The left is telling us exactly what the word means, and we need to listen. Next, Howard Anglin, writing in The Hub on October 13th, wrote, there is a smaller group for whom the idea of decolonization has a harder edge. They welcome it as a chance to turn the tables on our country's historically dominant European majority, not by supplementing our traditional symbols with new ones, but by disparaging them as shameful and displacing them. Now, Howard is getting a little bit closer, but he still dances around the issue. So the point of decolonization means action. It means direct action. They told us this is not a theory. This is something you hear about in a classroom or in a DEI workshop. Decolonization means direct action. It means violence. That is what they're telling us. Finally, JJ McCullough, who is a prominent Canadian YouTuber, he wrote on October 12th on X the following, I'm a little troubled by the fact that decolonization, which is a very mainstream concept in Canadian political discourse, is understood, at least by some faction of Canadians, to mean indiscriminate extrajudicial killing. Just a little troubled by that. Yes, JJ has hit the nail right on the head. He is right, he is troubled, and we should all be very, very troubled by that. Okay, let's move on to talk about how this is all playing out on university campuses, which as we know, are ground zero for radical leftism and extremism. And as we're learning, ground zero for the violent ideology that is known as decolonization. So my alma mater, where I graduated from the University of Alberta, became something of a punchline in a joke over the week because of an open letter that was signed by the University of Alberta's Sexual Assault Center. So the center was one of the signatories. It wasn't the only one. There was about 40, from best I could tell, uh, groups and individuals who signed this letter, including Sarah Jama, the disgraced MPP from Ontario. And the letter, amongst many other things, denied that sexual violence happened against Israeli women. So I won't read the entire letter, but here is what it looked like. It says, 
stand with Palestine, call on political leaders to end their complicity in genocide. We know that when the far left calls Israel genocidal, they're really just using Hamas talking points because, of course, it is Hamas that is genocidal against the Jews. The Jews are just simply trying to protect themselves and have their own country. I digress. Uh, the letter rambles on and on and on. One of the most interesting parts of the letter is that they uh, specifically call out Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the far left party in Canada, and they call them out. They said Jagmeet Singh repeated the unverified accusation that Palestinians were guilty of sexual violence. And so that, of course, the you know total hypocrisy and ignorance of a sexual assault center, a place where women are supposed to go on campus if they have been the victim of a horrible assault, like sexual assault. They're supposed to feel safe going there. And here we have this group at the University of Alberta denying, openly denying, against all evidence, against all proof, um, that sexual violence took place. I imagine being a Jewish woman on campus at the U of A and even considering going to a place like that, the Sexual Assault Center. Such a disgrace. No wonder it made headlines around the world. Here's the Daily Mail in the UK. It says, Sexual Assault Center at Canadian University signs onto open letter that disputes women were raped and sexually assaulted during Hamas terrorist attacks. It made news across the US and even in Israel and of course across Canada. Former Senator Linda Frum posted this on Twitter. She posted the letter and wrote, the University of Alberta needs to find new professionals to staff at Sexual Assault Center, given that current members believe some women deserve to be raped and that Jewish rape victims lie. If you are a U of A alumni, please make your feelings known to President Flanagan. Uh, I took up that call since, like I said, I am an alumni of the University of Alberta. So I posted the letter that I wrote to President Flanagan right here. Basically, it's come to my attention. This has happened. You know, I'd like to see you take some action. Look forward to seeing how you will handle this situation. I was pleasantly surprised that just one day later, the university did reply to my email and they replied to my call and Linda Frum's call, many others, and they took action. The University of Alberta's president and vice chancellor, Bill Flanagan released the following statement, basically saying, look, this person is no longer employed by the university. The university has appointed a new interim director at the Sexual Assault Center. This was great to see. Actually pretty proud of my university for taking this action and showing some leadership here. I wasn't the only one. International human rights lawyer Halal Neuer wrote the following. He wrote, good news, Samantha Pearson, denier of Hamas rape, has been fired from her position as head of the University of Alberta's Sexual Assault Center. Bravo to Mr. Flanagan at the U of A for his swift action. All universities should fire Hamas apologists. That is absolutely right. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen. There's so many universities that employ Hamas apologists that promote them. And the problem doesn't just end there. Even in the covering of this story, you see the Globe and Mail do the exact same thing that the woman who got fired from the crisis center said. So here's a headline from the Globe and Mail. University of Alberta replaces sexual assault center director over a letter questioning alleged Hamas rape. So <laughs> the Globe and Mail throws in the term alleged just, uh, again, to throw doubt at what is now at this point very much verified claims that Hamas used rape as one of the tools of their horrific attack on October 7th. Despite this very small glimmer of hope from the University of Alberta, the problems run much deeper. I pointed this out last night, Tuesday, November 21st. There was an event at the U of A called Glory to Our Martyrs. Our Martyrs, yes. The Hamas terrorists who murder Jews are known as martyrs. And according to whoever's organized this event at the University of Alberta, inside an official building, those are our martyrs. Those are our martyrs, according to some people at the U 
of A, a University of Montreal lecturer who shouted at a Jewish student to go back to Poland has been suspended for the rest of the term, suspended with pay, of course, so not really that big of a deal. Imagine still getting paid for a job you no longer have to do, and that's a supposed punishment. Over at the University of British Columbia, we saw these stickers popping up all over campus. Yes, I love Hamas. Again, they don't just quietly support terrorism. They love terrorism. They love Hamas, and they're very, very open about it. They want everybody to know. They're saying the quiet part out loud. They're saying it really, really, really loudly. They think violence is great. They love Hamas. Now, of course, there are a million examples on university campuses of radical leftist students and faculty. Sometimes you can't even tell the difference between the students and the faculty. But they are making absurd and obscene comments celebrating Hamas, celebrating terrorism, celebrating October 7th. Resistance is justified when people are occupied, they say. By any means necessary, they say. Globalize the intifada, they say. Decolonize Canada. All of this just means justification for violence. It's all a call to action, a call to violence, a call for more massacre. Now, thankfully, I'm not the only one noticing. Thankfully, Elon Musk sees it the same way. So I want to point out a series of tweets from the other day. An individual named Colin Wright wrote this. He wrote, decolonization is the woke version of jihad, and it should be viewed and treated the same way. 100%, I completely agree with this. Now, Elon Musk saw this tweet and he replied, yes, decolonization necessarily implies a Jewish genocide. Thus, it is unacceptable to any reasonable person. I would go way beyond that. I would not say that it implies a Jewish genocide. I would say it's a genocide against any group that the left calls settlers or the left considers the need for decolonization. And Canada is grounds zero for that. This is where so much of these ideas are coming from. Elon clarified, and he went even further. He said on November 17th, as I said earlier this week, decolonization from the river to the sea and similar euphemisms necessarily imply genocide. Clear calls for extreme violence are against our terms of service and will result in suspension. Now, this is a good first step. A big public platform like X recognizing that these veiled calls for violence are still calls for actual violence. They have no place in our society. The next important step would be for Canadians to begin to recognize that this term, decolonization, decolonization is simply a call for violence. When you hear it at your place of work, at your children's school, or by any government official, you need to stop them. You need to voice your concern and explain to them that it is an extreme call for violence, and extreme calls for violence have no place in Canada. So how can we fight back against the radical left, their newfound confidence to openly call for violence, or at least veiled calls for violence, using terms like direct action, resistance, and decolonization, which we know are just euphemisms that mean violence, and in some cases even mass murder. I wanted to bring in my friend and colleague Rupa Subramania to have a discussion on this topic. Rupa, I don't know if we always agree, uh, especially on this issue, but I always really respect uh, your position and the research and the thought that goes into it. So a couple of weeks ago on uh, Twitter, there was a sort of brouhaha over a column by Warren Kinsella. He basically pointed to some of the very vicious pro-Hamas rallies and some of the sort of more vocal uh, people that were more or less calling for genocide. And uh, in his in his original tweet, he wrote this, again, if they're here in a visa or do not have citizenship, deport them. If they have citizenship, charge them. I think that they deleted that tweet and changed the headline a little bit, watered it down a little bit. I believe that the latest version of the headline said, charge them, prosecute them, convict them, and then jail them. Um, either way, Ben Mulroney, who is the son of former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, and he's a sort of well-known TV host in Canada, he quote tweeted uh, Warren Kinsella, quote, 
posted and wrote, oh, I co-sign this. And you sort of took issue to it and said, you know, I, I don't like the fact that uh, people's civil liberties could potentially be violated. Uh, we're talking about deporting people just because we don't like their views. So I'm wondering if you could sort of expand uh, on your thinking and talk about why you do not think we should deport people who promote and celebrate mass murder. Well, first of all, I mean, let's unpack what you said. I mean, um, you know, you're asserting they're celebrating mass murder. All of these things are up for interpretation. They're highly, highly contested. Your view may be that they're uh, calling for mass murder. Um, I've been to three of these rallies here in Ottawa. There are people who, um, there are all kinds of people who are part of this movement, including people who are calling for mass murder. I'm not denying that. But let's stipulate for the sake of argument that saying river to the sea or free Palestine is inciting violence. Now, th that falls under criminal law and should be uh, prosecuted as such. Um, that's my opinion. There is no legal, but there is no legal or ethical basis for deportation on such grounds that I'm aware of. It would be, first of all, it would be unconstitutional, con unconstitutional, and. This is the kind of stuff that happens in totalitarian uh, countries, uh, countries in the Middle East, countries in uh, uh, countries like China, where you question the state or you question Islam, for example. I've lived in some of these places. Uh, you you do get deported uh, for for crossing that red line, and the red line in these countries happens to be these things. I personally don't want to go there. I'm a free speech absolutist, but but let you know. I want to make it clear that you know. Incitement to violence is where I, you know, there's a clear red line for me there. So, for example, if you tell someone to go, uh, you know, buy a gun and tell them to go and kill a bunch of people, that is not protected speech anywhere uh, that I'm aware of, neither in the U.S. nor in Canada. Um, but we get into more difficult terrain, in my opinion, when it comes to expressions such as from the river to the sea and free Palestine. Now, on one reading of it, it would seem like th this is a call for the destruction of Israel uh, and, and this would not be considered protected speech. However, another reading is that um, this is just a uh, this is just a trope or a refrain. Uh, used on behalf of the Palestinian cause that goes back several decades. Uh, it is even used by um, entities such as the Palestinian Authority, which does not call for the destruction of Israel. It does not wish to annihilate Israel off the map. So it would be a stretch to say that this is uh, an incitement to violence for someone to take up arms against the st state of Israel. Now, I want to point to... Um, uh, I mean, I, I don't know uh, how much you want to go into this, but, you know, Candace, you and I uh, spoke earlier about um, how this is a battle uh, for civilization, uh, in a sense. I don't know if you want to go into that, but I'm happy to uh, talk about it. But those are roughly, yeah. Well, we, we can get into that in a minute, Rupa, because I just want to pick up on what you said. Look, I don't think that Canada is immune from going down a totalitarian path. I think that we saw glimpses of that uh, during COVID and with the trucker convoy and Trudeau just sort of quashing a protest simply because he doesn't like it. So I am with you on this. I think that we need to preserve the right to peaceful assembly, the right to protest and the right to free speech. Those are absolute cornerstones of our society. But when we're talking about 
the difference between a country like Canada, which is an open, diverse, tolerant, pluralistic society. We come across a sort of fundamental problem. I think it's an existential problem when we also pair that with mass unchecked immigration. So people are allowed to come from anywhere in the world. Uh, we don't screen for ideology. We don't screen for values. So for all we know uh, of the people coming to Canada, they could all be fervent uh, you know, crazed Jew haters. Uh, they could hate gay people and want to, uh, you know, implement some kind of a law where we where they kill these people, right? And so it's like sooner or later in a liberal democracy like Canada, uh, we're going to have to deal with the problem that many people around the world hold views that are simply incompatible with the West. And I, I do believe it's a civilizational struggle. I think that Canada's made a lot of problems when it comes to just allowing anybody to come in. And then on top of that, you have this festering ideologies on college campuses, as I mentioned previously in the show, uh, terms like decolonization, which people will, will openly say it means mass violence. It means massacres like October 7th. Uh, so, so again, uh, you know, not, not to just simply repeat the question, but I'm wondering if you could uh, get into like, how, how, do, how does a country like Canada preserve pluralism uh, while also maintaining the freedoms? Because I think that these people will happily use our freedoms against us. They don't actually believe in free speech, Rupa, uh, because as soon as it comes to people who criticize uh, Islam, criticize the prophet, uh, criticize even Hamas leaders. We saw a Washington Post cartoon taken down a couple weeks ago because it was offensive to Hamas leaders. Um, you know, they're, they're happy to use that sword against us. Uh, but then at the same time, when it suits them, they're going to drape themselves in the veil of, we deserve free speech, we deserve peaceful protests, or, or the right to free assembly. They don't actually hold those values. So how do we deal with that? Well, we have to deal with it because it goes back to the fundamental tenets of Western civilization. Uh, before I get into that, I want to address the values thing of, uh, when it comes to citizenship. I'm inclined to agree with you. I don't think we should be allowing people who want to come to Canada and want to implement Sharia law, for example. That's not going to that's not the direction in which we want to go. Um, so, um, if, for example, I think the U.S., as far as I am aware, um, expects you to sign a saying that you are you, you don't belong to a communist party or a Nazi party or something to that effect. So, yes. Um, I think we we could we could develop something along those lines for sure. So we're in agreement there. But how do we how do we uh, preserve this? Now, um, a, a lot of people have talked talked about this in terms of a civilizational battle. Uh, what is happening in the Middle East? But it's also that term has also been uh, uh, used in the context of free speech. Um, you know, a clash of civilization, as uh, Samuel Huntington put it. Um, um, and so therefore, we must uh, suppress views that we don't like. I think that by going down that route, we're actually undermining a core Western value that goes back to the Enlightenment, which is free and open debate. Um, I, um, you might find free, uh, that kind of speech deplorable and repugnant, and I find that absolutely the, to be the case. But Free speech is not about uh, liking uh, something or, uh, or upholding the rights of views that we agree with. It is actually it comes down to protecting the um, uh, protecting views that we disagree with. Uh, and that's the fundamental litmus test of free speech of any civilized society. I want to talk about civilization. Why is this important? Why is this a fundamental core of Western civilization? Well, our Western civilization was founded on two, um, two sets of ideas and cultures. One uh, was uh, Greece and Rome, and the other was the Judeo-Christian um, uh, heritage. 
Uh, so Greece and Rome, all of the knowledge and antiquity um, uh, accomplishments during classical antiquity, and then the Judeo-Christian heritage. Um, and then, you know, and then the Renaissance happened, which rediscovered the glories of Greece and Rome. And then you had the Protestant Reformation. And then finally, the Enlightenment of the 18th century, uh, which included uh, thinkers across Europe like uh, Voltaire, uh, in France, uh, Immanuel Kant in Germany, uh, David Hume and Adam Smith in Great Britain. But here's the crux, and this is why this is so important. All of these thinkers of the Enlightenment agreed on one thing, uh, which is free, open, and civilized and rational debate. This was one of the fundamental tenets of a free, open, and li li liberal society. They, they, you know, look at what happened to Galileo, who was persecuted by the Catholic Church for saying that the um, earth uh, revolved around the sun, and he had to recant his view just to save his life. Let me remind you, all of this was happening in the context of the 18th century, which witnessed horrific wars and revolutions, you know, notably the Revolutionary War in the U.S., uh, in 1776, um, and and then you had the um, as a consequence of that you had the First Amendment in the U.S., which which get, offers the most robust protection for free speech anywhere in the world, and then you had the French Revolution of 1789 and beyond, um, uh, you know, which saw the um, which saw the high ideals of revolutionaries, um, you know, which was liberté, égalité, and uh, fraternity uh, uh, subverted by a brutal dictator named Napoleon. Uh, the Enlightenment thinkers like uh, David Hume, Adam Smith, uh, John Stuart Mill, um, then you go into the 20th century like uh, Friedrich von Hayek and uh, Milton Friedman, all of my heroes, put freedom of expression as a core fundamental value for any free and civilized society. So our Western civilization as we know it right now has been um, has been refracted through evolution over the centuries in one that prizes public reasoning based, based on free, open, um, and, and civilized debate uh, as a way to discuss and resolve uh, problems of public policy. So in the context of the current um, uh, uh, situation where you have these uh, pro-Palestinian rallies, um, um, I, I don't. I think it would be absolutely detrimental uh, to suppress these voices uh, because all it's going to do is it's just going to uh, move the stuff underground. We've seen this play out over and over again. Just look at what is happening in Germany right now. They banned pro-Palestinian protests. Has that reduced the number of anti-Semitic attacks? Can you can uh, someone actually say that is happening? It it hasn't. In fact, it's gotten no, worse. It's it's, it's certainly a Band-Aid. It's a remedy. And I'll, I'll agree with you on that, Rupa. I just, I just want to jump in, though, because I, I, I agree with you on the on the value of the Enlightenment and, and those great thinkers that you mentioned. I'll just say that they all had a foundational and fundamental agreement, whether whether they wrote about it or not, whether they believed themselves to be theists or atheists or Christians. They all held a fundamental ideal of what it meant to be a citizen, what it meant to contribute, what it meant uh, to, 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 to be an equal member of society. And what I worry about, what I see today, is that we don't share that foundational belief, that that foundational belief has been torn apart and ripped apart, that we don't have the same basis starting point. And I agree that 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 sometimes these bans, these ad hoc bans, aren't necessarily fixing the root of the problem. And I worry that that, that 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 root of the problem is so far gone that I don't know how we can repair it, you know, starting by saying, look, we have these core values that we all have to agree on. Uh, I, I think that might be a first uh, step in, in helping. Um, but I, I agree that you need to be able to think, you need to be able to uh, critique the system, and that that's all happening. Uh, but I fear, and, and another example of this was the um, 
viral TikTok trend that we saw last week of young Americans uh, talking about Osama bin Laden and their reverence for him and his letter to America and how it's changed their world and they're having an existential crisis. It's like when we don't have a core belief, when we don't have a message that unites our society, that tells us why, tells a story to ourselves about why we're here, why what we're doing is important, why we all share, uh, you know, a collective belief, um, which is something that they did have in the Enlightenment. I worry that we don't have that now. And so we're trying to save preserve freedom of speech, but it's actually freedom of speech is one of the things that's helping to sort of unravel our whole civilization. We do have it. I, I disagree with you there. We do have all of the core values at, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, w with us. It's just that we've, um, uh, we as and not you and I, because I think you and I have uh, consistently stood up for um, uh, individual liberties and freedom and that sort of thing. But um, Western society, at least over the last 10 years or so, has taken a wrong turn. Uh, you know, for, for the last few years, it was the left, the progressive left that that uh, that uh, that uh, presided over a culture of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, canceling people for views that they disagreed with. And and and, and you know, and especially uh, so here in Canada. But. All we have right now is to continue to, all we can do right now is to continue to uphold these rights, values, stand up for them every single time that it is under threat. And that is my battle, right? I see the free speech debate, the free expression debate. I see all of these things in an abstract way. For me, it is not uh, specific to a certain crisis, not specific to a certain um, issue. It is in an abstract way, I, I look at these things and it is not an emotional issue for me. I look at it in a clinical kind of way. Um, is this actually gonna get us more freedom? Uh, and, and look what happened um, during the pandemic, right? That wasn't too long ago. The pandemic was sold to us as an existential crisis. You don't abide by these restrictions. You don't abide by these lockdowns. We're all going to die. That was basically the messaging from our public health authorities. Some of us, including myself, momentary, momentarily believed that messaging. And I and I regret that to this very day. Um, and, and, and so there was this mass justification uh, for the curtailment of our civil liberties in peacetime. It was imposed on us, saying this was an emergency. Uh, doctors who dissented were canceled and fired. Um, and, uh, you know, and then you had, saw the Freedom Convoy and people who supported the convoy had their bank accounts frozen. It was an Orwellian reaction by the state. And and I, I, I fear that we are repeating the same mistake here. Um, I find many of the things that are being said at these protests absolutely abhorrent. By the way, let me point this out. None of this is new. We are only waking up to this problem now. I remember walking uh, in downtown Ottawa two years ago, a year and a half ago, there was another protest reacting to something that was happening um, uh, in, in uh, between Israel and Hamas. And uh, these, you know, everybody was chanting from the river to the sea, free Palestine and so on and so forth, intifada uh, and all of that stuff. The, there was absolutely no uh, debate. There was no attention paid to this issue. None of this is new. My point is that, you know, we have to allow this to, we, we have to allow 
uh, views that we find absolutely abhorrent, we have to we have to allow that because it is not gonna you're not gonna destroy Hamas ideology or radical Islam or any of the things that we find absolutely abhorrent. We're not gonna destroy that by suppressing someone else's right to express that uh, freely. It's not gonna go away that way. I think the the only way we can uh, do that is through debate. And and even if the other party does not engage in debate, we must we must insist on upholding the right to free speech. Okay, I I, I definitely see where you're coming from, and I and I appreciate your defense of of sort of basis of of, of freedom of speech and 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 fighting against sort of tyrannical government. I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions because I know you know you said that a lot of it is up for interpretation. So from the river to the sea, it's nuanced, perhaps, and you could say that it doesn't mean what we think it means. Uh, but so, so, some of the words you know, we've been seeing more and more, right? So uh, just just sort of rapid fire here. Uh, if someone calls for jihad, do you think that that's that's a call for violence? Again, it's, uh, I mean, this is a discussion I had with a senior official in the UK uh, when I was working on my free speech in the UK story last week, and uh, we had this very same conversation. Uh, now, he's, you know, uh, said that he, he wants to basically see these protests banned, but even he had to concede. It's hard to, you know, from, 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 a, uh, um, from a legal perspective, it really is hard. You know, it, you know, everything is context specific, right? Jihad, a Muslim will tell you it, it is an internal battle, but we also know that it means, uh, you know, it could potentially mean. Pick I, I, up I, th I think I think I think most Muslims won't say that, Rupa. I think most Muslims will say that that jihad has long been understood to mean a physical. Battle. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, the Muslims that I I, I have uh, I, I have interacted, I've lived in the Middle East. It is it is up for interpretation, just like intifada. Intifada, uh, again, uh, has been it, it, it means resistance. It means a resistance or opposition. Uh, nobody had any problems uh, using the word intifada in the context of the Arab Spring. You see, the thing is, even even having said all of that, you and I can disagree on what these things actually mean. My point is that it is still, as far as I'm concerned, it is still protected speech. If there's active support for a terrorist cause, material support for a terrorist cause, let's take the Khalistani problem for a second. There are people in uh, Canada, in, in, in our cities, who take uh, out floats and parades glorifying uh, uh, Khalistani terrorists as martyrs. I find that absolutely repugnant. It, it, makes, it makes me sick when I see that. But I hope I uphold their right to free expression as long as they're doing it peacefully. Uh, as long Including as they're the mastermind of the Air India bombing. You think if if someone's holding up a banner, they are doing the they, the they are doing that. That's, that's they, protected speech. They, they are doing that. They are doing that. I mean, they are absolutely doing that. I'm a free speech absolutist. I find it distasteful and repugnant. Again, it goes back to the core value of Western civilization, which is what I care about. Um, you know, it is for me, the litmus test of free speech really is not if you agree with someone, but if you strongly disagree with someone and you respect their right to speak freely, that's the litmus test for a civilized society. And I just don't, I've lived in repressive societies where, uh, you know, things are interpreted differently by someone who wants to come after you. And I've, I've faced the consequences of that. And I've seen others face the consequences of that. And we are uh, going down a slippery slope here in Canada. We've already, we came very close to being a totalitarian society under the pandemic. And I seriously, I do not want us to go down the same path. 
Okay, I think that's a great place to leave it. Rupra Supermania, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for your insights. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show.